Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Declan Mills of the University of Limerick. His paper was entitled Elizabethan Ireland, the Graveyard of Ambition or Land of Political Opportunity. Sir Henry Sidney, who was twice Lord Deputy of Ireland during the reign of Elizabeth Tudor, said that he, quote, cursed, hated and detested, end quote, the country that he had helped run. His attitude, and that, by the way, was on a, that was a matter of public record in a public statement to Sir Francis Walsingham. That was not a private opinion. His attitude exemplifies a common conception of English feelings towards Ireland during this period. This was the country that ruined the second Earl of Essex and cost the Crown vast amounts of money to control, where native nobility who were English allies one day would throw their lot in with Philip of Spain, Mary Stuart or the Pope the next. However, this paints an oversimplified picture of both the political situation in Ireland and the realities of life for the English administrators in the country. This paper will examine some, of the, some ways in which Elizabethan courtiers, politicians and administrators viewed Ireland and the prospect of working there. It will argue that despite the general consensus that Ireland was too uncivilised and too far from court to be considered useful to one's career, to the point where some nobles viewed posting there as virtual exile, many of the senior figures who were given posts on the island got them for practical rather than political reasons. It will outline the Irish careers of Sir Henry Sidney, Baron Grave Wilton, Edmund Spencer, Sir Walter Raleigh and the second Earl of Essex, five men from very different positions in the political hierarchy who had widely varying experiences of Ireland. It will show how, even though they all had negative perceptions of the country, lower-ranking officials such as Raleigh and Spencer could reap large financial benefits from Irish postings, while their superiors' responsibilities seemed entirely burdensome. (coughs) Although Sir Henry Sidney was the brother-in-law of Robert Dudley, Elizabeth's favourite, he did not enjoy the same royal favour as his more illustrious relative. Some have interpreted the fact that he was made Lord Deputy of Ireland not once but twice, in 1565 to 71 and 1575 to 78, which is the period James talks about, despite his frequent complaints, as a sign that the Queen actively disliked the Sydneys. However, Elizabeth herself insisted that she only sent him because he was an able administrator, and she was someone who was usually quite public about whether or not courtiers were in or out of favour. Um, both Sydney and his predecessor and other brother-in-law, the third Earl of Sussex, had worked in Ireland under Queen Mary, so they already had a lot of experience. Sussex had governed the country, with Sydney as his deputy in all but name. Elizabeth had reinstated Sussex in 1560, and dogged by the rebellious Shane O'Neill and Tyrone, and by Elizabeth's reduction of the troops Mary had granted him, not to mention his rival Robert Dudley's attempts to undermine him at court, because Dudley wanted control of patronage opportunities. Sussex's administration was soon overstretched and weakened by allegations of corruption and wastage in the army. These were brought by his rivals and infuriated Elizabeth, who prized economy in her governors. So by the winter of 1563, he was seriously ill and was recalled the following year officially on health grounds, leaving as his legacy discontented palesman, a treaty with O'Neill, and a detailed plan for establishing English control in Ireland, which he had proposed in 1562 and which Elizabeth had ignored due to its cost. So although Sidney knew he enjoyed Dudley's protection, his other brother-in-law's failure in Ireland would not have boded well for him. Indeed, Sidney's first Lord deputyship was beset by many of the same problems that Sussex had faced. The man who had been sent to investigate the corruption allegations against Sussex, Sir Nicholas Arnold, briefly ran the English administration immediately after Sussex's recall. By shifting English support from Sussex's ally, the Earl of Ormond, to the Fitzgerald Earls of Desmond and Kildare, he stoked the existing tensions between the great high Bernal Norman families of Munster and Leinster. 
When tensions erupted into warfare between the rival Ormond and Desmond factions, a furious Elizabeth replaced Arnold with Sidney, instructing the latter to patch the feuds as best he could and restore law and order. Unfortunately for Sidney, he faced the same obstacles as all of Elizabeth's Irish governors, her parsimony. Everyone from Sussex and Sydney to the 10th Earl of Ormond and Sir Francis Walsingham complained that they could not act swiftly in the Queen's service with the limited support she supplied, Ormond going so far as to say that he would progress faster if he could feed his soldiers with air and throw down castles with his breath. In the end, the undoing of both of Sydney's deputy ships would largely be money. Shane O'Neill was actually beaten by a rival Ulster noble and killed by his former Scottish allies shortly before Sydney briefly returned to England in 1567 and the Crown would go on to confiscate his lands, increasing the government's revenue. While Sidney was in England, he canvassed support for colonising swathes of Ulster and Munster, but did not get Elizabeth's assent for such projects due to, once again, the cost. However, pressing issues in Ireland, and the promise of a recalled Irish Parliament officially confiscating O'Neill's lands and increasing Sidney's revenue, sent him reluctantly back, with the Privy Council's backing and Cecil's act of patronage, but without any orders other than the need for a strictest economy. He hoped to press ahead with the creation of more provincial councils, for which he had royal consent. However, the difficulty in pushing the bills he needed through Parliament, and the cost of two uprisings in Munster and one in Connacht, took their toll on his plans. And although he managed to pacify the country, he was recalled in 1571 at his own request, suffering ill health. He found himself out of favour at court on his return, partially due to Sussex, who sought to undermine his successor's achievements and promote his own in order to bolster his reputation. Elizabeth, meanwhile, was unimpressed by his costly endeavours and the fact that his colonisation schemes had antagonised a lot of the old noble families in Ireland. However, by 1575, he was reappointed to the post, having seemingly hit on a way to make the Irish government self-sufficient within four years by imposing the English model of tax-paying subject and rent-paying tenant and making the use of force a royal monopoly. Once back in Ireland, he immediately had to put down a revolt against his plans in Connacht. His son, Philip, had accompanied the new Earl Marshal of Ireland, the first Earl of Essex, on Henry's Connacht campaign in his negotiations with Grace O'Malley, and Essex, as James said, died shortly after. This experience of the rebellious Irish Catholic nobility, as well as witnessing the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre whilst on, at first hand whilst on an embassy to Paris in 1572, seems to have influenced Philip's subsequent move towards the forefront of the Ford Protestant faction at court once he returned from Ireland. While Henry was away from Dublin, a group of angry palesmen travelled to London to make an unauthorised representation to the Privy Council against his schemes. Sidney sent his Chancellor, William Gerard, to represent his own case, but Gerard switched his support to the Palesmen and proposed a rival scheme for administrating the country. Worse from Elizabeth's perspective was that Sidney had vastly exceeded his estimated costs and had yet to even begin to impose his taxation system. With even Philip's father-in-law, Sir Francis Walsingham, beginning to withdraw his support, Sidney was once again recalled in 1578, having accidentally united the Palesmen and the old Irish lords in opposition to his policies, which laid the groundwork for the Nine Years' War. The three key difficulties that Sidney felt he had faced were troublesome native lords and palesmen, Elizabeth's parsimony and the distance from court, which meant it allowed his opponents to undermine him whilst meaning that his own achievements made little day-to-day impact on Elizabeth. This set the pattern for the remainder of her reign, and Arthur, Baron Grey of Wilton, also experienced these problems. Grey had a patchwork career. He was knighted for bravery in the 1560 Scottish campaign, crippled by debt incurred ransoming his father after the 1557 San Quentin campaign, and had a reputation for brawling with his neighbours over hunting rights. He was made Lord Deputy of Ireland in 1580 and enjoyed powerful cross-factional support for his tenure. Leicester and Raleigh had pushed for his appointment. Walsingham, Cecil and Sidney all offered him advice. And his secretary was Edmund Spencer, Leicester's propagandist for the Ford Protestant cause. Gray had been surprised by the posting, since Elizabeth had, up until quite recently, been refusing to give him any job. 
and he arrived in Ireland facing Catholic rebellions raging under both James Fitzjames Fitzgerald, the Earl of Desmond, in Munster, and James Eustace, the third Viscount Boltinglass in Leinster. His response after losing an initial engagement with Boltinglass's men was swift, efficient, and brutal. He turned his attention to Munster, wiping out Desmond's Spanish garrison at Smerwick and Kerry, and relieving the Earl of Ormond as the English general in Munster so he maintained personal control. He granted confiscated lands to his administrators, including Raleigh and Spencer, the start of the process that became formalised as the plantation of Munster later. Interestingly, though, Elizabeth specifically instructed him to leave the wife of the Earl of Desmond and her lands alone. There seems to be a bit of a pattern emerging there. Um, his ruthless suppression of revolt meant that, he soon, meant that he soon gained a reputation for harshness. Even Spencer, who admired Grey and was unsympathetic towards the Irish, was shocked by the famine Grey caused in Munster in an attempt to starve out Desmond. However, his English superiors were not particularly critical of this, as they understood the desperate circumstances he faced trying to fight two rebellions on unfamiliar territory with limited resources. As his military successes grew in number, support for rebellion within the Pale decreased, but he still had to deal with plotting nobility, and one such plot would lead indirectly to his recall. He arrested Gerald Fitzgerald, 11th Earl of Kildare, and Christopher Nugent, 5th Baron Devlin, as suspected accomplices of Baltinglass, and this provoked a new conspiracy by Devlin's brother William Nugent. This resulted in a string of executions, and a group of palesmen, angry at not getting any of the land confiscated after the executions, went to London making land grants, making allegations directly to the Queen about land grants going only to Grey's, quote, special favourites. This incensed Elizabeth, who felt that the Crown's income was being interfered with by Grey's use of confiscated lands for patronage, and she recalled him without ever fully investigating the accusations. Once again, the combination of rebellious nobles, untrustworthy palesmen, and Elizabeth's money consciousness had been the downfall of a Lord Deputy. After dealing with two people quite high up in the noble hierarchy, we turn to Edmund Spencer. He entered Pembroke, Pembroke College, Cambridge, on 20th May 1569 as a sizar, which suggests he came from a poor background, and it's the first real record we have of him. He could read Latin, Greek, French, and Italian, and he was wor- working shortly after graduating from his degree as, um, for the ambassador to France, Sir Henry Norris. So he was already quite early on involved in secretarial work for the government because of his linguistic abilities. It's quite possible that after his graduation in 1574, he spent time in Ireland working for Henry Sidney. In 1578, he entered the Earl of Leicester's household and produced propaganda against the Andrew match for Leicester, notably the Shepherd's Calendar and Prosopopia or Mother Hubbard's Tale. Some scholars have debated whether his subsequent posting to Ireland as Grey's secretary was a reward from Leicester for this, or an attempt by William Cecil to exclude him from court after the poet's insulting depiction of Cecil as a duplicitous fox in prosopopia. But given the amount of Leicesterian influence over Grey's appointment and the opportunities the posting would afford Spencer, the former seems more likely. He had already formed pretty strong anti-Catholic and anti-Irish sentiments before he arrived in the country, influenced by his time in France his social circle, and the solitary lesson of watching his friend Philip Sidney's father destroy his health and deplete his finances trying to govern the country. These would strengthen over time. He served with Walter Raleigh at the siege of the Spanish garrison in Smerwick, and the two men became friends and neighbours, granted estates side by side in West Cork. Raleigh would be Spencer's patron for his next literary project, a 12-book epic poem in praise of Elizabeth and Protestantism called The Fairy Queen. Book 5 of The Fairy Queen, which ostensibly deals with the theme of justice, is set in a mythologised version of Ireland, in which several characters struggle with monsters, giants and tyrants in order to bring order to the land. In Canto 12, one character, Article, fights the giant Gran Torto and defeats him, slaying a savage tyrant intended as an allegorical representation of the rebellious Irish lords. No sooner has he done this than he is assailed by three monsters, Envy, Detraction and the Blatant Beast, who have overpowered him by the end of the canto. This was Spencer's view of Grey's undermining and recall, and may have been correct, given the amount of greed and envy involved in the accusations brought against 
Grey to the Queen. Spencer's view of Ireland was also laid out in two other works. A View of the Present State of Ireland was written in 1596 and was an attempt to suggest a solution to Hugh O'Neill's rebellion in Ulster and work out a method of imposing English common law and Protestantism on Irish society as a whole. It praised certain aspects of Irish culture and literature while at the same time advocating the plantation of the entire country. This was to include displacing thousands of native and old English landowners and instituting martial law in order to clear the Irish roads of itinerants by killing them all. Spencer also used the tract to defend Gray, saying that he was not, quote, a bloody man, but someone, quote, most gentle, forced, by, forced to brutality by the situation in Ireland. Meanwhile, the 1591 eclogue Colin Clouds Come Home Again allegorised Spencer's 1589 journey to London with Raleigh to seek Elizabeth's patronage for the Fairy Queen. It tells the tale of the simple shepherd Colin, who travels across the sea to the court of Queen Cynthia. Although he praises the wonders of the court, which he describes as a place of, quote, happy peace and plenteous store, he also criticises it as the home of, quote, painted bliss, where, quote, each one seeks with malice and foul strife to thrust down each other into foul disgrace, himself to raise, end quote. He did, however, express his gratitude for Cynthia's gifts, a reference to the annual pension of £50 that Elizabeth had granted him. Colin Clouds Come Home Again encapsulates Spencer's ambivalent view of Ireland and his posting there. On the one hand, he benefited usually from his time here. The Desmond rebellions and subsequent plantation of Munster provided not just land, but new administrative posts that were available to the ambitious and hardworking. As somebody from a relatively poor background, Spencer could have found it difficult to rise through the ranks of power in England, where administrative vacancies were rare and for the most part doled out by William Cecil as he saw fit. So moving to Ireland gave Spencer great opportunities for advancement, which he was quick to utilise. However, while Spencer, the administrator, benefited from the move, Spencer, the writer, was missing out on the opportunities for patronage that being present at court provided. Spencer wrote The Fairy Queen in Ireland, away from the distraction of courtly intrigues, funded by his administrative posts so he did not have to constantly seek patronage for his writing. However, the need for more for royal patronage, and just as importantly, from the perspective of a writer seeking to establish a lasting reputation, royal recognition required a journey to London. In the end, however, Spencer's Irish experience was negative. In September 1598, as the Nine Years' War raged, Spencer was considered for the position of Sheriff of Cork based on his administrative experience, wartime experience with Grey, and his reputation for proposing policies to solve Irish issues. In mid-October, his estate in Kilcoman was attacked and his manor house burned to the ground. 17th century writers claimed that he and his family had escaped the attack at the last minute, some saying that they did so by fleeing through a secret passage which was recorded on the estate map. More recently, it had been suggested that the whole family had already fled to Cork City. Either way, Spencer lost his entire estate in one night, although he still had the income from his pension and from what administrative work he could get. On December the 9th, he was sent to London with documents for the Privy Council, bringing his family with him. One of these papers, called simply Certain Points, was probably written by Spencer himself. Just 800 words long, it was a series of logical propositions based both on the opinions set forth in The View and on the new wartime situation in Ireland, designed to give English officials a crash course in what was necessary to resolve the crisis, ending with a six-line poem declaring that the second Earl of Essex would defeat Hugh O'Neill. If Spencer had lived a little longer, he'd probably have felt rather embarrassed about that. <laughs> After delivering the documents, Spencer remained in contact with the council. He may have attended the, to the court in session on December 24th, when the Irish situation was discussed, and he was certainly at the royal Christmas festivities, where Shakespeare was also present. Although his financial situation was more limited than it had been in Ireland, he received a payment of £8, half a year's salary for an educated man, from the Privy Council on Christmas Eve, and was living on King Street near Whitehall, an expensive address, which suggests that his friends at court arranged for him to be put up near the council. However, he died on January the 13th of unknown, unknown causes, probably a combination of stress, ill health and the cold of the London winter. 
was a side note, I will note, that his wife married again and her second husband also died of unknown causes. Not making any judgment there. Despite being Spencer's friend and neighbour, Walter Raleigh's experience was markedly different. The son of a country gentleman, he had served as a volunteer with the French Huguenots in 1569-70 and studied at Oriel College, Oxford. A friend of the Earl of Oxford and part of the pro-marriage party during the Anjou negotiations, which would have made him opposed to Leicester and Spencer, he'd fallen out with Oxford and Henry Howard and had been briefly jailed after brawling with them. His friends secured him a commission in Grey's army in Ireland, and he soon rose through the ranks, proving himself an able soldier and capable of taking advantage of every opportunity afforded him. Finding a letter on a dead Irish soldier after one battle, he discovered unspecified intelligence that he delivered to London personally, raising himself in Cecil's estimation. He was soon granted an estate in Yole, but while benefiting from its income, he spent most of his time at court in the Netherlands or on voyages to America, so his fluctuating fortunes over the years were not tied to Ireland, and the island was merely a step on the road to his future rise, and he entirely benefited from it. If Ireland was Raleigh's first step towards power, however, it was the second Earl of Essex's last step before a fall. The Earl of Leicester's godson and successor as Elizabeth's favourite, Essex had a varied and stormy career often overreaching himself and exhausting both his resources and the patience of his peers by his attempts to gain military glory in Spain, France and the Low Countries. While Leicester and William Cecil, despite occasionally coming into conflict, had settled into their roles as Elizabeth's favourite and chief, chief administrator respectively, Essex frequently clashed with both William and Robert Cecil over power, control of patronage and Essex's military ambitions. Tensions came to a head in the summer of 1598, when Essex angrily withdrew from court after Elizabeth scorned his advice on the appointment of the next Lord Deputy of Ireland. By November, the crisis in Ireland caused by nine years' war had brought him back to court. Determined to regain Elizabeth's favour and outwit his critics on the Privy Council, he accepted the position of Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, leading the campaign against O'Neill to restore his military reputation. And this is around the time that Spencer was over writing certain points and talking to the Privy Council. He planned a lightning attack on key rebel positions, but despite early victories in Munster, soon realised that once again he had not been given the men or supplies to deal with the situation as it stood, and the inevitable war of attrition would undermine his reputation and infuriate the Queen. Explicitly ordered, personally by Elizabeth, to meet Hugh O'Neill on the battlefield, he did so in August 1599, but agreed to the rebel Earl's request for a truce before a battle could begin, and organised a negotiated ceasefire with him. Elizabeth was furious, and Essex, driven to desperation, deserted his post in Ireland and rushed to London to defend himself. He ended up under house arrest and then released but barred from court. Facing financial ruin and blaming his enemies at court and not his own actions for his disgrace, he planned a revolution to release the Queen from their supposed influence. On February 7th, 1560, Essex and 400 lightly armed followers marched on London. They were defeated without a shot being fired and he was executed for treason. Although the combination of enemies at court, intractable native lords, and Elizabeth Parsimony doomed Essex's Irish campaign, it was his own actions in England, both before and after that campaign, that doomed his career. It seems that the experience of Elizabethan administrators in Ireland varied quite widely. For Lord Deputies and Lord Lieutenants, the issue of enemies at court and the Queen's strict economy could be crippling, particularly as, rather like this paper, they were being expected by Elizabeth to do a lot in very little time with very few resources. <laughs> However, for lower-ranking men like Spencer and Raleigh, Ireland could be a land of political and financial opportunity. I think it's quite telling that when Raleigh returned to court after gaining his estates in Ireland, he did not immediately pick up a court position, and he was able to fund the lavish lifestyle of an Elizabethan courtier solely off the income from his Irish estates, and he wasn't even getting all of that because he wasn't in Ireland. They were being administrated by a bailiff who was taking a small cut, and yet he was able to fund a courtly 
career, which suggests that he was getting quite a lot of income. Similarly, Spencer would have been able to live quite comfortably writing simply on the income from his estates. And the income from his administrative positions was a benefit that became a necessity only when he lost his estate. Even from them, for them, however, the distance from court could be problematic, as they were removed from the centre of patronage and culture. Spencer and Raleigh both addressed this issue in different ways, Raleigh by deserting Ireland and returning to court, Spencer by seeking to set himself up as the Queen's poet. But there is little doubt that Spencer felt he was living at the edge of civilization, constantly under threat from Irish Catholic rebels. Whether or not this was outweighed by the financial benefits of his posting came down to his own personal perceptions. Even for people like Henry Sidney, however, the difficulties they faced were as much to do with Elizabethan policy and Elizabeth's expectation that they pacify the country with few men and fewer resources as to do with actual Irish rebelliousness. So there is perhaps a certain amount of debate, there's a question there to be asked about whether or not their negative experiences in Ireland were because they were in Ireland or because they were under huge financial and time pressures. And that's something that I'm going to leave open because their opinion of it was that it was a combination of both, and that's all we have to go on. But Elizabeth certainly believed that it was only their own actions. She seemed to believe that she was giving enough money and enough troops. So that, that, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you.